every entrepreneur has a story. Welcome to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur, where each episode, your host, Brian Carney, will share a drink with a successful business owner and have them discuss their unique journey, gaining insight on what it takes to be an entrepreneur and different ways to get there. Brian isn't just a beer nerd, he's also the co-founder of River's Edge Advisors, a financial planning firm headquartered in Delaware, specializing in working with business owners. It's time to pour yourself a drink and enjoy a happy half hour with an entrepreneur. Hey everyone, welcome to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur. I am your host, Brian Carney. My guest today is Dave Raymond, and I have to admit, I'm pretty geeked up to talk to him today. I am a huge Philadelphia sports fan, and uh, while I'm extremely biased, without question, the Philly Fanatic is the greatest mascot in the history of all sports. Dave is actually the first person to ever go out on the field wearing the Fanatic costume. He is the original Philly Fanatic. But since he hung up the suit, he started multiple businesses. He has Raymond Entertainment Group. He started the Mascot Hall of Fame. And now he owns a professional speaking business and wrote a book, which I have right here, called The Power of Fun. <laughs> so for this conversation, I, although it may be blasphemous to be from Delaware and say that Dogfish Head is not my favorite brewery, Trogues is actually my favorite brewery. So I'm trying a beer called Joyous IPA, which I've never had before. So we'll give it a review at the end, but I'm looking forward to trying this. Dave, welcome. Hey, Brian. So I'm 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 going with the standard Corona, but of course I'm branding the University of Delaware. We you know we we have some joint interest in that brand as well. So love uh, I I love look this invite is great anyway because I appreciate you and the business you're doing. That you're a Delaware guy. I love all that. But when you said, "Oh, we have to have a drink," I'm yep. like, "Okay, all right." Twist my arms. So exactly. <laughs> exactly. So cheers to you. Thanks. Yeah, for cheers. Here, let's take a sip. Bye. Yeah. Ah. All right. So um, ready. let's start with how in the world does someone end up becoming the Philly fanatic? Oh, well, Brian, I, I followed the plan, right? From, from, <laughs> from three years old, I knew I wanted to be a Muppet. <laughs> it, uh, no, of course. I mean, like most of the, you know, the great success stories, um, I, I, I really relate to Malcolm Gladwell's outliers. Yeah. This concept of, of, people that have skill sets and a passion and they're not really sure whether it's going to really affect their lives. So they're kind of trying to find how they can, you know, exercise that passion without knowing they're doing it. And then suddenly they get access. So there's luck. Somebody provides them access. Yep. Uh, and then that access leads to uh, unbridled ability to express your passion. So 10,000 hours of practice, but to somebody who's doing it, they don't, they're not looking at it as practice. They're just, following this passion. So there are some elements in, in my story. I, you know, athletics was the backdrop. Sure. Um, I, in my keynote, I'm always setting the tone for in my life. All, all I cared about was being my, you know, being like my hero. Yeah. I, I wanted to go play football at Delaware for my hero. And I then of course figured out, right, well, I'll be a football coach like my hero. And that of course was my dad, Tubby Raymond, and very proud of, of his record and, and an idyllic life. Um, and the funny thing was, uh, you know, your parents, when you look back, give you some of these nuggets, sometimes in a backhanded way that you remember, you know, they gave me some direction there. And my, my dad and my mom used to say when I was 12 years old, 11, 12, they'd say, you know, you really have this gift uh, to talk and connect even with adults. And you do that very 
casually, like it's natural for you, that will really help you in your future life. And then my dad would say, my dad would say, all right, now sit down and shut up. (laughs) Of course. And and what's, what's ironic is the job that he gets me by this, you know, I'm going to help you get a job with the Phillies because he knew the ownership. So that was my, he knew the Carpenter family. They're big part of Delaware's history. And absolutely. So I have, I have that access. And then the job that materializes is one where I have to be a mute Right. That, so my dad, you know, sit down and shut up. You don't know how much that'll help you. Yeah. So, so he's, so it was really a, a perfect storm, very, a lot of access and luck. But then what happened to me, and as I look back, I was perfectly defined in terms of a skill set to do this. Yeah. Great. Uh, I, I was not a great athlete, but I got every ounce of ability out of me because I knew how hard I had to work. So yeah. I understood athletics. I understood baseball in this case, which was wonderful. I understood fandom. I knew what it was like to be a Phillies fan. I had the same heartache all of us had. I knew what it was like to be successful and win a lot, which is what you know, dad did at Delaware. Sure. And then I had this wonderful nonverbal communication skills because my mother was deaf. Ever since I was three years old, she went deaf and my entire life was trying to get her attention and I had to be in front of her oh, to wow. be able to communicate. So, um, you know, so all of those things came together in this perfect storm. And then Bill Giles said, goes like this, you know, and says, okay, you're doing it. And I'm like, of course I am because I was getting a third um, internship summer when I thought I was only going to get two. So 76, 77 was what my dad helped me get. And then I thought, okay, now I've got to graduate. And, you know, maybe the Phillies liked what I did for them. So I'll get a job when I graduate. Instead, this crazy idea comes up in Bill's head and he wants to ask the one person who was not smart enough to say no. (laughs) So he, so he gets me. He goes, hey, do you want to do this? We're going to pay you. You can stay for all the games. It's going to be great, you know? And I'm like, yeah. And then people reminded me that I was, you know, I was going to be in charge of entertaining fans that threw snowballs at Santa Claus. Right, exactly. So, you know, maybe I'm going to be in the target, right? So um, that's pretty amazing. So yeah, it really started. does seem, you know, I, I didn't realize that your mother was deaf. So you know, to have, to be in that suit, not be able to talk and to have the connection sort of line up the way that they did. It's almost like this was, you know, this is almost like fate for you. Well, and, and that's, that's, was the original question. Like these things always, when you deconstruct them, you'll find, uh, and, and Gladwell hits it, nail it. You, you get this access yep. and, and there's a lot of people that get access that either don't take advantage of it or don't have the opportunity to have that access. And some of it dies on the vine. Yep. Um, the ones obviously that are big successes, you know about them because you can deconstruct because you know the end of the story is a good one. Sure. So it, it just things fell into place. And uh, in the early going, I was very anxious, had a lot of anxiety because I thought I'm going to lose my job because, you know, anybody can be stupid. Right. I mean, you know, <laughs> can't we find somebody who could do stupid for less than he can? I mean, yep. and, and I'm thinking they're right. Maybe they could. And so I wasn't really paying attention to what was driving the success. And looking back, I'm happy to give myself uh, and proud to give myself some credit for building the personality. Of course. Uh, and give the Phillies great credit for allowing me to go out and, you know, develop it, making a few mistakes here and there and finally defining what we all thought was great. And, yep. it, and because Bill, as an enlightened leader, said, well, go out and do it and then tell us what you think. I'm like, well, you tell me, you're my boss. No, no, no. I need to know what's happening. You tell me what you think. And he did that over and over again. And that's why uh, it was successful because they let me do it where some organizations would have said, stop that. 
sit down, can't go there, you can't do this. And it would not have worked. And it would have, uh, it would have cut off my uh, ability to exercise what I thought I was best at. And yeah, pretty amazing. And they empowered you to sort of, and trusted you enough to just kind of let you do your thing. It's great. It's great. My next, my next book, Power Fund, is about how you leverage fun to be, to make you, to build sustainable happiness. My next book, I've been uh, noodling on and working on, will be a leadership book about, you know, how, how fun can uh, define enlightened leadership. So uh, I'm, I'm working on that. that. That'll be another five years. It <laughs> <laughs> took me five years. So I, I'm not, not the best writer. Yeah. I <laughs> love it there. That's great. So let, since you brought up your dad, let's talk about him real quick. So for those of you who don't know, Dave's father is Tubby Raymond, who coached the University of Delaware football team from 1966 to 2001. And a lot of people credit him not with creating the, the Delaware wing T offense, but really making it sort of mainstream. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, it, it's it's a derivative of a single wing, which was, you know, 30s, 40s and 50s. Yeah. Um, in the infancy of college football. Uh, but the the modernization of it, which Dave Nelson and my dad collaborated to build some modern tune to it was basically the, the, the two benefits were you could take smaller people and make them great linemen because there's a lot of influence. In other words, you make the defense think you're going somewhere yes. by the way you're reacting and the way they'll react to you reacting. And then a hole will open up where it doesn't take a great deal of uh, strength to do that. It takes a lot of movement. So they yep. have smaller mobile linemen. But then the most important thing was they were able to give you a formation that not, not to geek out on, on oh, yes. this, the, the, the tiny uh, parts of, uh, of offense and defense. But when you put a formation that the defenses goes, uh, they can hurt me here, they can hurt me here, and they can hurt me here. Yeah. Um, I, you know, so my cues by following the fullback Yep. Put me in the wrong position. So yes. you got to change your cue. And it, and then that allowed them to attack different areas. And the beauty, beautiful thing of the wing T was if you attacked one area and they did what they needed to do to stop it, there was automatically, you mean, Oh, well, then this is going to be open. Yep. We'll do, we're going to do the same movement, but we're going over here. And it, it was beautiful. And the yeah, reason why my, the reason why my dad was such a great offensive person was he was an even better defensive mind. Yeah. Uh, and you know, that, it, it's that, funny if you've played high school football in the state of Delaware, you've gone against the the wing T, the misdirection of the wing T. So, when did you realize that you weren't going to be a football coach? <laughs> you weren't going oh. to fo follow in the steps of your oh. dad. I I started well. My um, I was a baseball player. I was a good pitcher, left-handed pitcher. Uh, my my senior team went on to win the state championship, which shows you how much they needed me in the rotation. <laughs> I, I hurt my I hurt my shoulder. And it was it was rotator cuff. Uh, uh, they they diagnosed it as tendonitis, but and and you were supposed to just you know be leave it alone. So I finally said, you know what, I'm, I'm it's I can't do this anymore. I was a pretty good hitter, but I played outfield and first base. But uh, I really loved to pitch, and I was good at it. And in my young career, it looked like I might be able to play college baseball. Yeah. And then I th that stopped. And so my uh, freshman year, I went out for fullback and linebacker on the Newark High School football team, which had won multiple state championships. And when I came in as a freshman, they hadn't lost a game in three and a half years. Oh, wow. So, so this were, these were great football players. We were known for a uh, great coach, Bob Hoffman. And, um, you know, he was a tough guy, uh, motivational, uh, just a great 
great coach to have as a young person. And my dad just let me do it. And meanwhile, he's going, he, he weighs 150 pounds. <laughs> um, I, and I wasn't fast, you know, so I had two of the great assets to be a football player, small and slow. Yeah. Uh, but I, but I worked hard. And the best <laughs> advice my dad gave both my brother and I was, look, you might be able to do anything on the football field, but make sure you learn how to kick. Oh, Punters and place kickers, they are, they're vital to a football team. And if you do that well, you're, that increases your, your flexibility and increases your value on a team. So Chris and I became somewhat gym, gym raps, uh, rats in terms of kicking. We'd have a bag of balls every summer, day after day after day. We'd kick and kick and kick. And, and soccer-style place kicking had just come into the fold. There was a kid sure. by the name of Sam Aniski that, that kicked for Delaware, and there was a guy before him. And so we learned how to do that. And then we both punted. We would kick, place kick, and then we would punt back and forth and try to drive each other back and forth. And I got to be a pretty good kicker. My brother went and kicked for Virginia. He oh, wow. A, he went, went as a place kicker. They had an all-American place kicker in front of him. So he started punting and he was a punter for them. So he, division one football is a kicker. And I went and punted for my dad at a division two, a high level division two program. And it's not until now, Brian, I look back and, and give myself credit. Hey, you know, when I saw my daughter playing softball and, you know, she I, I don't think she ever really wanted to play college softball, but right. she had a lot of people talking to her about and recruiting her. And I started realizing through that process how really difficult it is to do that. So, yeah. um, you know, so so we did that. That was great advice. Um, and I was a pretty good wide receiver in my senior year at, at Newark. I was the starting wide receiver. I was the punter and the place kicker. The only thing I didn't do was kick off. Oh, wow. um, and that that got me on the all star team because I could be their their punter and place kicker. And they asked me to kick off as well. I um, and I played a little bit wide, of wide receiver in that game, too. So it was um, that was when John Carney was our quarterback. Oh, OK, no relation to me. But yeah, I know. I know. I, you know <laughs> had to throw the name. It's a good name. Yeah, that, yeah absolutely. So um, going back to, to the fanatic. So you did it for 20 plus years. I was, I was with, I was the fanatic for 16 years. I was with the Phillies for 18 years uh, and 18 and a half years to be exactly correct when I left in 94. Okay. So when you look back on that time, do you have a single memory that stands out that you can pinpoint and say, that was my favorite time about being, being associated with the Phillies? Well, there, there's no question that the 1980 world series parade yeah. Uh, which, by the way, I went on YouTube and actually found I, I've told the story hundreds of times. And I I actually you know saw the fanatic on the flatbed uh, truck that I was on. Um, you know, originally, Bill Giles wanted me to be on the on the front of the parade with the players. And I told him, I go, listen, after these last couple of weeks, Mr. Giles, the costume smells like, you know what? And I, <laughs> they're not going to want me in this tight space with where they had all the players. And he said, well, we've got an extra flatbed that we were using as a backup and everything is working properly. So we'll put that at the end of the parade. And that was the best vantage point, you know, to see the yeah. sea of Phillies fans. So that was my, my favorite, but I'll, I'll tell you that the surprising part of it, uh, which and I do, I talk about in, in the keynote and the, and the process of powerful fun is the amazing good works that the fanatic did every single day. Yeah. And, um, you know, in the early going there, you know, in some cases in a hospital room, there's a, a mo mother that's crying, hugging me and thanking me for giving them a few minutes of respite. And I'm leaving the hospital room going, I, I just showed up. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, I didn't understand that value. The impact. Yeah, and, sure. And I, I could tell you six, seven, eight stories right around that concept, but there were thousands of them. And that yeah. it's an amazing, the benefit it did for me. 
um, and as well as seeing the benefit the fanatic did for those people. So, and you, it, that was your job. I got paid. Yeah. That's <laughs> amazing. To show up and make people feel great. I it's, it is funny that you were directly responsible. Like you can see when you go to a Phillies game, even now, I'm 41 years old. And when the fanatic comes out, I perk up and want to see what he's doing. And I legitimately like crack up at some of the things that, that he, that he does. So, and I, you know, I've been going to, to, to the Phillies game since I was, you know, five or six years old. So that is part of the experience, you know, and that's, that has to be a really cool thing for you. Yeah. It's uh, we, we, the joke we that Tom and I, Tom, Tom is the fanatic's best friend. Now Tom, we're going, we're very mm-hmm. close friends. And we both feel great ownership in the character and, I'm and sure. deser- deservedly so. I thought maybe I would feel jealous when I left. It it was such a seamless transition that I got to see my daughters as, as little girls get interact with the fanatic on the dugout because, you know, I, I could get them access to that yep. experience. And then I got to hear all the fans respond to my kids that I never got to experience when I was the fanatic because I was working. I'd get done with the little kid, hand them back to their parents, and then I'd go off and take a break or do something else. Meanwhile, I watched my girls get all this adulation from the fans. Good job. You look beautiful. And yeah, that's that's great. So, we, so I've, I've had that seamless uh, transition that's been – so that we say the fanatic is evergreen, uh, pun intended, because I have to explain to my 15 year old who Mike Schmidt was. Yes, he right. No, he has no concept of Mike. And, and that's part, I guess, of the beauty of of sports and your heroes. Every Very generation true. has their own. But, you know, we're, I'm always av, you know, advocating for, you know, for for Mike and the greatest third baseman. How can you not know him? But that's just the way it works. Not with the fanatic, though, because yep. he's my dad knows on for hopefully hundreds of years and, and be constantly relevant and, and building new fans. You're, you're absolutely right. So I have to, and you sort of brought this up when you talked about the parade, but I'm sure you get asked one question as you, you know, as it relates to the fanatic more than any other, my guess as to what that question would be is actually one of two. Number one, does that suit smell? And number two, is it really hot in there? That, those are probably the two that I would guess would be the most asked uh, questions. But what's well, the last question you get as a as the fanatic? I, I think it would be those. And then, of course, you know, uh, Ed, as I'm sure you'll want to discuss, you know, was Tommy really mad at you? Yes. Uh, but yeah, so the, the, the smell started because the, the people who built the costume for us they're directly from the, the Muppets lineage. And, and but if you think about who the Muppets are, they're working in controlled from a production standpoint, they're working in the controlled atmosphere studios. Right. <laughs> uh, and you know, you get done doing a little bit of work and then you take a break and costume the puppets and all the costumes can dry out. And, but we're working, you know, uh, in the middle of July days a year and <laughs> in the hot, humid conditions, outdoors, dust and all the mess, even on an astroturf field, all, all the mess you have outdoors. And it started within weeks just to reek. And uh, when I would talk to the people in New York, they'd go, well, you gotta, you can't, you can't get it wet. It's just, it's gonna, you know, you can't do this to you. You can't just hang it up and spray it with disinfectant. I'm like, you know what? I'm tired of smelling like a mixture of BO and list or, um, and uh, Lysol. I'm tired of that. <laughs> so I took the feathers out of the tail and threw it in a bathtub of cold water. And we'll like, cause I said, if it ruins it, it doesn't matter because it's not working this way. People don't even want to go near it. Yeah. And it worked beautifully. I called New York and say, Hey, you can clean it. You did. How'd you do that? And then so <laughs> that started a whole collaboration with them because it was very, that information was really valuable to them building their business. Right. Because I was giving them frontline, um, you know, information about sports mascots yeah. that 
were never known before because sports mascots were just being created. And they went on to create a number of very successful sports mascots. And the information that we gave them allowed them to be better at what they were doing. That's the classic. Uh, just uh, didn't understand that environment. Yeah, that's the classic necessity is the mother of invention. And that that says it pretty, yeah. pretty and well there. This yeah. was the this was the extra uh, emphasis on wanting to do it because if it was bothering me, yeah, I'm sure it was bothering them. One of the things I still say today when I get in front of people for uh, a keynote, I go, "Look, I know, I know that probably when you saw this on the agenda, you're like, oh, uh, we get to see the fanatic, and then I show up yeah. and you're disappointed. <laughs> but let me tell you something, I smell so much better <laughs> this way. That's great. Well, so now we do have to talk about it. So you brought up Tommy Lasorda you know, who recently passed away. And there was sort of a little uh, back and forth with between the fanatic and Tommy Lasorda. Uh, And some people think that it was legitimately like he legitimately hated the fanatic. So, uh, you know, you got to go on record and clear that up. Well, I, you know, it it was, um, it was both uh, certainly unfortunate his passing, but the, but the fortunate part of it was we, we had a chance to share those stories that, that I stood around and, and heard Tommy retail the same story that retell the same story that I was telling. And I, and you know, when you tell a story and over again, you think, am am I adding some hyperbole? Did it really happen that way? Right. Yeah. And then watching him tell the story in front of his entourage and pointing at me and saying that kid's lucky he's alive. Um, But it all started. I mean, I had a good, a great relationship with Tommy. Yeah. Um, Like, like, like his players did, but you talk to his players, they say, ah, Tommy was great, but man, oh man, there were times when I just wanted to kill him (laughs) because he would do this to me and this to me and this to me, because that's the, that's what he did. He he motivated his players through some fear, uh, through some friendship and great uh, memories, but also, you know, he was a powder keg, keg, you know, he made them realize and Earl Weaver was the same type of manager. Sure. And it it was brilliant. It was very hard to uh, lose people uh, if you use that too much. And he was, so I met him all the way back in 79 when I was on a trip of Japan as the representative of major league baseball, the mascot was the fanatic and um, he was the manager. Chuck Tanner was the bench coach and for the national league. And uh, he caught me signing baseballs cause I wanted people to know the fanatic was on this trip cause I was young and stupid. And I was signing on the, the sweet spot where the manager's supposed to sign. Sure. Yeah. So he, <laughs> he staged an intervention, you know, rant went nose to nose screaming at me. And then everybody started laughing and I realized I had, I was pranked. Yeah. Uh, but then he made me sign all the baseballs for the entire trip. So I was late getting to all kinds of other events cause he made me sign uh, six dozen baseballs. Your head's right? cramping up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I realized why players sometimes get, get sick of, uh, you know, Autograph. doing, doing autographs. So that's the way the, um, the, the relationship started. And because we did some little back and forth on the field and the Japanese fans went crazy, Tommy thought that was cool. Yeah. So over time we kept doing that. Well, uh, John Marks on WIP, when he interviewed me, he said it the best when I was explaining to him that we were friends, but he really did get upset that day. So John goes, so Tommy was good with it until he wasn't. Right. <laughs> and I said, that's, that's perfect because that's exactly the way it happened. He, yeah. he loved it. He loved it. He loved it. And then he was trying to lose weight and he was betting Oral Hershiser that he was going to lose more weight. And then SlimFast became the sponsor of that. Yeah. And he came in this one night, two weeks without pasta, sick and tired of me dressing the dummy and doing my routine, yep. <laughs> uh, you know, claiming that I was I was defiling the Dodger blue. And he went out and um, and he went nuts. I mean, he was and he was using my name. 
Yeah. He oh. was saying, fanatic, I'm going to kick your blankety blank. <laughs> he was saying, Dave, and he was swinging. He was, and he connected uh, with a, with a push and a punch that you can't really see. Yeah. And then he took the dummy and almost, and you watch that video, you'll see the whole fanatic's head because I'm laying prone with the fanatic's head up. And he hit me here and it just goes, bloop. <laughs> because like the chin strap came off yeah. and it, and I went and grabbed it. And what you don't see in the video, cause they cut it out was I actually crawled to the photographer's booth cause I had to get in there and snap the chin strap back on before I jumped on the four wheeler and drove away. And he, he fires a baseball at me and the commentary from their broadcaster uh, was so funny. And he was laughing and, and saying, when we went on break, this happened and he was recounting it. Um, and he sounded like, um, gosh, who's the great college or uh, college and pro broadcaster that did the play-by-play -play of the guy running down the field? I, I think he's drunk. Yeah. He's got uh, a red shirt on. He's, that was, yeah. So yeah. Uh, he, that's the way this broadcaster did it. And it's up on YouTube. And Oh, that's great. A, a million hits. Tons of great nuggets, you know, to go, to, to be able to go look at that. And you can actually... Cheers. Yeah, cheers to that. You you brought up Earl Weaver. You can actually get into a really wor a odd wormhole with Earl Weaver getting ejected from games on YouTube. My brother's a huge Orioles fan, and he's always doing that. So you, that that that's a great part about being able to have that you know Tommy Lasorda fight preserved forever. Yeah, you you will never. This is what's sad about this, and it's what I said about Tommy's passing. We're we're getting the a lot of the fun sucked out of the game, and of course, analytics makes it even yes. more boring longer games, all the stuff that people are complaining about that they're going to have to figure out. But remember, uh, uh, it was uh, uh, Billy Williams, it was Earl Weaver, um, uh, and, the, and, the, and the Giants manager that I'm, I'm losing right now, but they would run out to the umpire and they'd take their hat and they'd spin it around backwards. Yes. And then, you know, that, you won't see that anymore. They, they're, some of the passion and, and that type of argument has been sucked out of the game. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, if, again, I sound like an old man and I'm getting there. <laughs> they should throw away all of the camera angles and the eyes and the, and the strike zone and all that stuff and just let the umpires call it. Yep. Even if it means a particular bad call costs somebody the game, that's part of the game. Yeah, it <laughs> always know, has and been. It, and it makes people go crazy like, oh, we, we got robbed. We, you know, um, and I don't want somebody to lose a game because of a bad call. But you know what you find out with those umpires? Those guys are really talented. Really Absolutely. Talented. Yeah. And they go through hell to get to the major leagues because I've I've gone on the minor league circuit and I see the young guys who are away from their families constantly working on their craft. They are really, really sophisticated and awesome. Then they've got personalities that rub some people the wrong way, yep. but they are really good at what they do. And we should just let that training do its work and let them be great. And not to mention they're right. Most of the time, Mo you know, most like 98% of the time or whatever it is. And the mistakes they make, you look and say, Oh my gosh, I can see how they could have made that mistake. Yeah. And it's it sometimes it's hyper slow motion. motion and you exactly. go, how did they, you know, and you're seeing, they're seeing there and then you look and say, wow, they're right. I, it didn't look like they were right. Yeah. So, so I, they are good. And I, you know, I would appreciate taking technology out of yeah. uh, officiating. I, I just don't think it, I, I, on, uh, at the end of the day, yes, there is some satisfaction. Well, I'm glad they got it right. Sure. But then the delay, it knocks down the passion of the motion, the emotion of the moments. And it, it's just, you know, it's, it's like, um, you know, and I know getting on a stage and like, um, an interruption or a technology glitch, like we're all experiencing, just 
I mean, you can get over it and people forgive it, but it does just wreck the moment. Yes. Um, and, and you just want the flow to go on. And, and, and I don't want anything that's going to delay a baseball game more. We should be able to have a, a baseball game in three hours or less. Yes, not four and a half. I yeah, agree. It's, it just isn't worth it. <laughs> so you, you, you retire as the fanatic. How do you make the next transition into owning businesses? How does that all go about, come well, about? Well, it's funny. I never, I, I flunked my first accounting exam at Delaware and changed my major <laughs> to physical education. <laughs> so I was not set up to be an entrepreneur, but my brother uh, worked for JP Morgan Chase. He's a very brilliant financial mind. And I went to him and said, you know, I, I'm not like a, ba- I'm not unlike a baseball player physically. I'm not going to be able to do this forever. Good what point. should I do? And Chris said, oh, you should run your own business. I said, what the heck am I going to do? She goes, he said, look, I'll write, a, uh, I'll write a business plan for you. And we sat down and chatted and put a nice little business plan and helped me raise some money. And I had decided at the end of 93 that what I needed to do was I had two paths. Go to the Phillies and say, look, in a couple of years, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do this. And, you know, let's hand the torch over to somebody who can take it over. Where do you want me to go? You yeah. know, OK, we're you go into marketing. And what happened was you've got the the structure of the organization with the pay scale. Yeah. And the fanatic was out here. Sure. You know, because it was a, it you don't was a, fit. No, I don't fit. And, yeah. and that's all I was doing. I, yeah. I was, it became so important for me to perform. I didn't have a desk for three years after the fanatic was born. I, I had no place to go in the stadium other than the locker room Yeah, and, and where the costume was stored. They actually built a little hole for me across the way that was actually an air conditioning dump for the entire stadium. So that's why it was freezing cold in there. Um, so, you know, so I, that's what I was doing. So I figured, well, what's, what's my skill set? Now that I figure out what my skill set was that I was getting, like I say, paid more money than I thought I was worth because I didn't understand it yet. And then, but I got to figure out something else to do. So this business plan helped me understand what I could do. I started to follow that plan when the people in New York who had uh, created the Fanatic costume said, we'll, we'll create a new costume for you, a new character for free. We want you to go into business with us. Okay. So for nine years, we did that. And I'm thinking, and and I was still performing for them, but I was learning about the structure of a business. Um, my partner, Wade, was was uh, great with me. Um, you know, he was like my mentor for organization and structure, which I didn't get in school. And then um, that uh, we our goal was to create value for a character that we owned. And then right. I said, OK, well, I would earn money by owning the copyright for the fanatic that I didn't own. I could own the copyright for this character. And, um, you know, we did a great job together, but I ended up, you know, working with them and then we decided we need to separate. And I, you know, had my idea based on the business plan that Chris had originally created for me. And I went into sports marketing. Okay. Um, So, uh, you know, it was wonderful. It was great natural transition. And I established my, or reached my goal of figuring out what, what value I could provide yeah. outside of performance. And I probably would still be with the Phillies if I stayed there. I'm sure I would have been happy, but I wouldn't be as happy as I am today. Well, that's great. That's great to say. So um, when you look at, you know, you have Raymond Entertainment Group and a few years ago, you get a call from the Flyers and they're looking for some help developing a new mascot and Gritty is born. So when Gritty comes out, you get in the day of instant feedback on social media. That's putting it politely. Gritty comes out and gets noticed. So talk about how that all played out and and the the experience with Gritty. 
Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, the one thing that if anybody's interested, and I wish I had all the specific information, maybe we can put it in the, in the show notes. Um, in two weeks, uh, we found that there was a gritty fan club on Facebook, about 11,000 people. Oh, that's so amazing. My business development uh, guy, Nat Measley, he's also a Delaware guy uh, and a good friend of mine. He reached out to the organizers and said, hey, why don't you have Dave Raymond on to do um, recounting the story? So uh, we have uh, 300, I think, that are signed up and we're using um, a Zoom account that can handle about 300. So amazing. I'm excited about doing that. And, and we're going to do some of the same stuff. But uh, Joe Heller from the Flyers, who used to work for Mike Tatoian at uh, Dover International Speedway, who's and Mike's a good friend of mine. And Joe got the job with the Flyers. And he called me about a year before we we pushed the go button and said, is this what you do? And can you help us? I said, absolutely. This is the perfect you're the perfect client because you're contacting me even before you've decided to start. Right. A lot of organizations look at me as, Oh, that guy builds mascots. So they do make all the mistakes planning and then they go, all right, let's push go. And I'm going, Oh my gosh, you've made like three big mistakes. I could have helped you avoid. Yeah. Um, and, and now I can be selective when I, and I want to start early. So I said, perfect, Joe, I'm, I'm, I'm the perfect a collaborator. And, and I kept telling him it's going to be a collaboration because I'm going to tell you what I know and you're going to share with me what you know, and together the output will be better. Right. But it's going to be a surprising start. So he said, okay, fine. So the, we have a mascot intervention is what we call it. And the Amazing. whole point is to understand <laughs> most importantly, the things that you should not be doing. And then we're going to talk about the things that you hate first because those are easy to recall. They're, they, they can be viscerally described and yeah. we can get them out of the way. So when I got together, I said, all right, well, here's my first negative thought. Um, I don't care what we do. I don't care how successful we are. I don't how, you know, we may create the next Kermit the Frog or we create the next fanatic and it doesn't matter. Everybody is going to universally hate it when you roll it out. Amazing. And Joe said, and his whole team said, and, and the word came down from T Sean Tilger, we don't care. That's great. Um, and I thought, okay, I've heard that before. I heard that from, I heard that from the 76ers um, when Mr. Allen was in charge. Um, so I said, okay, we'll see. Uh, and not only did they express that confidence, they kept saying, it's not for the people that are going to be yelling. Those are our current fans that don't like this stuff. We're tired of losing an opportunity to connect with young kids who know nothing about hockey or know a little bit and don't understand to appreciate the game yet. And we want to get them involved in our brand. And I said, Great perfect. Point. That's, that's exactly what the Phillies did. The, the only difference between the Fanatics rollout and success and Gritties was the time frame because of social media. Yeah. So that's exactly what happened. We did all this work, great work. They, it was a collaboration because we were designing for them. And ultimately, and this happens maybe 5% of the time, ultimately our design didn't get selected. Yeah. We had a design that was a, that was a bull and it had hockey sticks for horns. Oh, cool. <laughs> two thirds of the committee liked it. Yeah. And, and Joe was calling me frustrated because he said, look, Sean, our boss who's directing us said from day one, and this was the other thing he said, we don't want a character that kids are going to run up and hug. They may want to high five them. We want to scare kids a little bit. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> that's pretty, that's pretty amazing when you want to attract kids. But that was part of what hockey is about, right? Yeah. So, and it's authentic and that's the collaboration. Cause I didn't say, Oh no, no, that's not a good idea. I went, okay, great. If that's, if that's what you're passionate about, that's, that's what we'll do. Well, we brought in this young designer from Flyland Designs who Joe, somebody that Joe knew in the organization knew um, 
uh, Brian and uh, they brought Brian in and Brian had done some sketches and we're all like, oh my gosh, that's it right there. Yeah. And with, we had to make some changes, but you know, in my business, you might think it's a failure if I don't get a design selected from my design group, but no, my job is to get them where they're supposed to be going. And that's a yeah. collaboration, no ego. And Brian's a, a friend of ours and he does amazing work. Um, and so what we did was, it, I don't care. I get them to yes, that's all that matters. Yep. Um, and then it rolled out in yeah. at, the, uh, at the Please Touch Museum. Uh, and uh, they did a really wonderful job and they brought him out and there were 300 uh, elementary school kids. First time in my, uh, all my experience that not one kid jumped up and ran in terror. They all were like, and I was amazed because I'm waiting for the two, three kids to get up and, ah, and, run and be, be collected by their teachers and then yeah. pull them off to the side. And then they would be like this for the rest of the time. <laughs> yeah. You know, none of that. And I'm thinking, oh, that's pretty good. So this is the, this is where the fun starts. Joe Heller does this to me. I'm standing next to him and he goes like this with his phone to me. And I look at it <laughs> and it's a tweet came out seconds after they introduced him because they were live streaming this. So it was focused on kids, but anybody can join. He sucks. I hate him. <laughs> and so, so I'm like, Let's okay. And then I see him sharing it. Everybody's giggling, but Sean Tilger is doing some media spots with live television and for the six o'clock news. And I said, I'm thinking, well, let me see what Sean does. So Sean comes over and he and I had like a lot, like the top boss, I'll have interactions with him, but I'm not spending the time with him that I'm spending with this group. So he comes over, he looks at it, he goes, it's not very creative. Don't share that one. <laughs> They're the ones that are creative. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm like, oh, this is gonna work. I'm like, you know, cause that's the time when everybody starts going like this. And you know what starts to shrink. Of course. And so um, the one I love was the tweet that I saw within that 24-hour period. It was somebody did an Instagram post, and it was a picture of Gritty was the yep. main focus. And then two pictures on the other side. It was one of Yukon Cornelius mm -hmm. and the other from the Abominable Snowman. So these are two of the one of the favorite supporting characters of Rudolph, right? Yep. Wonderful children's story yeah. with a red slash through it that said, use condoms. <laughs> that is awesome. And I'm like, oh, and, and they, boom, they shared it on all their channels. And then, you know, Gritty has his first Instagram post is him in a, in his hockey outfit. And I think he's I got skates on and he's slid to a stop and he's like, here's Gritty. And yeah. I'll, bam, 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 you know, there goes Gritty, you're out of here, we hate yeah. you, you suck, here's this, here's that. Some of them were not appropriate, which they didn't, um, but I followed it and it was, the turning point was when um, the Pittsburgh Penguin, you know, our hated rival, yep. um, everybody hates Crosby. Sure. Uh, and he was there. And so uh, the Penguin does a dismissive tweet that said, LOL. Okay. You know, with, I don't know whether he was like this, but he, he was like, yeah, whatever. Right. Yeah. And then, um, the, the performer who I'm, you know, I had, you know, told the fires, this is your performer. I, yeah. you have to approve him and meet him, but this guy's perfect for you. He was working for their Allentown organization as their character. And I'd known him since he graduated from Rutgers. And, uh, so they hire him and he's his, Instagram at, at, uh, up in Lehigh Valley was just phenomenal. I watched it all the time. He was really great. Well, then they have two young women, uh, in senior positions of their social media content, which 
it's a young person's business and they're Absolutely. brilliant. So yeah. this performer and the two women have formed this team and their social media is amazing now, but it was, you could see it happening. So they all got together and said, how do we respond to the penguin? And it, it was kind of this collaboration where somebody said, uh, yeah, well, you know, he should be, he better be careful if once he falls asleep and somebody said, oh, oh yeah, uh, keep one eye open. And then somebody said, bird, <laughs> done. <laughs> keep one eye open bird. And then that's when, when our people, our Flyers fans jumped on and said, yeah. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Don't you make fun of him. I know he's ugly, but he's, he's our Not ugly. ugly. That yeah. That's and great. That, like that. I, I know Greed was like the most tweeted about, uh, thing on social media for a week and it was all negative for those first couple of days but you're right to see that to 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 be able to persevere through that initial horrible response and now now he's beloved everywhere and it, it you do very such a very it's a very philly thing like you can say bad things we can say bad things about us but you can't and we can say the we can say the worst of the worst exactly and we're and it's okay yeah, but don't like you know the, the the thing about business, Brian. This is such a great marketing and branding lesson too. The reason why the Flyers were successful is they were fearless with their brand. That's yes. a very hard thing to do, but they but they did it all in a knowledge based way. So I come in, give them the platform, the process for success. They took it to heart, and they were fearless with it. So um, the great the great discoveries in business in general are those things that are not easily understood. So when you say the main focus is to, is to engage kids and get them into, to understand how great hockey is. And in this case, Flyers hockey. And yet you say, but the mechanism is going to frighten them. Right. <laughs> that's a, that's a non-consensus thought. Yeah. But, so Uber, Uber was a non-consensus thought. You know, you're going to wave down a stranger, you're going to jump in the car and say, hey, give me a lift over there and uh, uh, I'm going to pay you with my credit card. Here's my credit card. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and people are like, that's that's insane. Oh, we yeah. got taxis. We don't need that. That's dangerous. And well, the, the people at Uber that were that were pitching that idea already understood how the business was going to work. So they yep. were very secure and this is going to work business wise. So the fact that nobody gets it makes us even more special. Yeah. So that's what the Flyers did. They they took the idea of a mascot and said, we're going to scare kids. Yep. And, <laughs> and they, but we're going to do it in a funny way. And it's going to sure. be part of our brand. We're going to be able to answer the why. Why are you doing it? And that was the other thing I told them. You, you got to be fearless and, and, and you're going to get killed. You have to be able to write a story about this character that will answer all the questions. Why? Why is he orange? Duh. Yeah. Uh, why does he look like he needs a shave and his and and he needs to work on his teeth? <laughs> yeah. Have you seen our players? Right. Uh, you know why does he look tough and hard scrabble? Because you know because hockey's all about grit. It's in your mind when you think of what happens on on the ice. It it makes me hurt just thinking about it. Sure. It's this hard cold ice that you're getting your butt kicked and you're yeah. slammed to the ice and everything's fast. You got this puck when it hits you. It can it can break bones. I mean it yeah. is a really gritty, tough, nasty sport. And yet they make it look so beautiful and, yeah. and simple. So this that's character perfect. embodies all of that. And yeah. That's, staying that's staying fearlessly committed to their vision is that's, that's pretty, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. And it's scary um, to do that. It, it, absolutely. The Sixers, the Sixers couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, and, and they've ended up with Franklin now that's a good character brand, but that, that was before they got frightened and, and, just threw everything away that they've spent a lot of money on. So sure. uh, 
Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about your business now. So t- tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and, and how your business is set up now. Well, we've, we've got two focuses. So when I came home from my last uh, live keynote on March the 12th, uh, <laughs> a year ago, I, I thought, hey, I can get a job at McDonald's Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because I'm in sports marketing and no, no events, no fans, as it turned out. And, um, you know, I'm a keynote speaker and no live events. Yeah. Uh, so there was a moment that we paused. And my concept has always been that the SEO and the stories of Gritty and the Fanatic just bring me business. I don't have to spend a lot of effort or time on marketing that service. People come to me and say, oh, if if this company did these things, then we want to at least talk to them. And that's all I need is a conversation. Yep. And then I can then I can be a little selective over there. The speaking business, I've been speaking for 30 years, Brian. I, I love doing it. Uh, it. It is what my mom and dad said might help me. Yep. Uh, in my it is life. a performance. Um, and, and I love to perform and I, yep. and I certainly enjoy a positive response. So, yeah. and I've worked very hard at it. So what happened was people were paying me to speak and I was just ignoring that revenue. And then I started realizing, wait a minute, this is, this is really something I should pay attention to. About three and a half years ago, I went to Minneapolis right before the uh, Eagles checked into the same hotel nice. uh, a, a number of weeks <laughs> later and won the Super Bowl. I was in that same hotel and I went to a conference, 75 people, it was a pretty exclusive group. And, and the, the teacher there, Jane Atkins, uh, who, who's amazing, um, talked about the business, brought in a couple of very successful speakers that we got to know, brought in speakers bureaus people, which to the woman that was there started her speakers bureau 42 years ago when the pandemic was born and I'm now a part of her speakers bureau. So all of that's come together in in taking everything that I learned and the mistakes I made in business and the fact that I flunked my accounting exam. (laughs) I got all this knowledge in building Raymond entertainment and the fun department uh, that I, I put it to bear in a speaking business. And it's been wonderful even after the pandemic, because um, I have a whole, this is my virtual set. Yeah. Um, I've got lighting and sound. I've got, a computer so that my tech person can actually remotely connect. So when I do my keynotes, I'm not going to my computer and say, well, let me get to my slides. Let me get to the video. He, he just controls it. We're going to get a, you know, we're going to get a second camera. If it's all working well, we're going to get remotely operated cameras to up our game from a production standpoint. So we'll impress the client. Like, you know, Dave's talk was awesome, but you know, it's amazing too. Everything was seamless. There were no breaks. So you know, technology is a little fearful on my end, but I'm just leaving it up to the experts. And so that's what we've done. So one of the things that we've been very successful doing for business development is have these types of conversations in front of a select audience for our clients, whether it's business development or whether it's connecting with current clients, a value add for fundraising. You know, we're working for far- with Farmingdale College to build up their, their fundraising efforts. Um, and it's wonderful. It's easy to do. Um, and then I've, uh, in in the more recent at times I'm, I'm booking uh, keynotes that are virtual. Um, I'm really proud of the fact that I'm going to be speaking to the Club Management Managers Association of America. Yeah. And my fellow keynote is Jim Kelly. Oh, uh, that's cool. That's so really I, cool. I'm, I'm ex- that's, you know, where I want to be. Yeah. But I, I love uh, these podcasts. I love connecting with people where yeah. I can talk about the messaging. So we'll talk, uh, talk a little bit about the book because you, you talk about the FUN method. And to, what, what, what is that exactly? So it's so um, I, I said in the beginning that I was anxious that I thought they could get somebody uh, stupid enough uh, <laughs> that, and, and get paid less. Well, what I found out was I was really the, the best at that. And so what I did was I discovered what my skill sets were. So that was the first deconstruction because people were asking me, 
why are mascots so important? Yeah. And the answer that I learned was because they connect on an emotional level. So imagine for your brand, you have an ability to give somebody an ad, you can advertise in front of them, but they they hear the message and they retain it because when you do it, you created a joyful moment for them and their family. Good point. That's amazing. So that's why it took me a while to, you know, I used to say, well, everybody loves mascot. It's a cartoon character you can hug and take a picture with. Yeah. Well, if you boil that down to marketing, if you're making an emotional connection with people seamlessly while delivering your message, that's yeah. without that's words. That, yeah. It's pretty powerful. So yeah, that's really powerful. But then I started to, you know, I, you know, unfortunately my mom at 59, uh, it was diagnosed with a glioblastoma brain tumor. And the, the doctor told us all like, like he was saying that he was going to get a cup of coffee. He said, your mom's got eight months to live. Oh, wow. So now you, my life in Newark, Delaware, all the way up till I was 32 and a half years old. Yeah. To suddenly go, Oh my gosh, can, can this really happen? I, right. And then right in the mix as the brutality of life comes at us, my marriage fell apart because oh, wow. I was basically ignore, ignoring my young son and my wife to take care of my mom. And my mom was kept telling me during her, you know, her struggles to make sure you're paying attention to your family. And all of that happened at the same time. And um, I was ready to quit. You know, wow. you, you get into hopelessness. That's the danger area. What we're point. psychology tries to keep people that are really miserable and hopeless to make them less miserable but positive psychology is new. It's taking people from there and learning how you can go well above that with your happiness. So with me, I'm, tr I'm, I, I was going to quit everything. Yeah. <laughs> and I told the Phillies, you know, clear my schedule. And I actually found this last appearance that I was doing before my schedule had been shut down, that it was helping me. And I realized that the fanatics personality, the ability for me to disappear for a couple of hours was this refresher and rewiring. And then I realized, oh my gosh, don't clear my schedule. Give me more appearances. And it's truly, I, you, know, I, I, you know what you do for fun, but tell me how fun can save your life. That's what that book's about. Wow. So, because it, because I say, I, look, and some people will go, oh, well, I know how important it is to be happy because they understand it. But most people are like, well, I'm not really sure what do you mean by that? Non-consensus, right? I know it works because I lived it. So the non-consensus means I've got something that's important to tell them. Yeah. And so I tell the stories about the fanatic that are engaging and funny. And I answer questions about Tommy Lasorda. But the message is about uh, fun as a force. It works everywhere. You is for universal. And no uh, suggest if we're going to use it everywhere, we better show people this is serious business. Yeah. There's great ROI for it. And then the, the fourth lesson is the power of distracting fun, which is the part that once you know the three building blocks and you're practicing it, you now have the superpower, which is the power of distracting fun. And that is the one that is the superpower to overcome the most difficult challenges in your life, including your own life expectancy. You know, if, if you are a quadriplegic, yep. you're going to get a depressive mood, but how do I work my way? beyond where I was feeling before I was a quadriplegic and be much happier than I ever expected to be when I, when I could walk and move all my limbs. These are, this is empirical data now. I'm, I'm not making those stories up. Right. So, yeah. so this was what, deconstructing that first level of understanding the power the fanatic had and then realizing it saved my life because it was forcing me to be around happiness and joy. It was my job. When I showed up, I made people happy. That was great. But then I started realizing this makes me happier. And it solved one of the most difficult challenges. And I've lost my father since then. Yep. And as, a, as an entrepreneur, there's always financial concerns and anxiety sure. and stress. 
and it and it's just been it's been like a magic potion it is a superpower and and i can't wait to have people hear it because they're not expecting it oh this guy used to be the fanatic that's cool right. and then and then we i get done and they're like oh wow yeah that's amazing and yeah and that's I love sneaking in because they go, well, this guy's just going to entertain us. It's going to be. And, and and I do that. But the message is what's so powerful. And I get people to come up with me afterwards in the Q&A's and say, hey, I get that. You know yeah. that I was doing that and didn't know why it was working or people go, I'm trying this tomorrow. Yeah, I'm starting tomorrow. Um, so it's, that, that really is amazing because, you know, when you get into that negative mindset, it's easy just to keep going further and sink further as opposed to even really looking for a way out. And, you know, I, I love this concept of being able to use fun as a way to not only dig out from the bottom, but really drive yourself forward and, and be able to, you know, to have a, to, to increase the positivity of on all aspects of your life. Well, that's, that's the, exactly what you said is the, you know, what I talk about, I say this, these are the tools. This is a tool. you got to value it. And it's, by the way, it's simple, but it's not easy. Sure. You're, you're changing habit loops. But once you once you believe in it and you use it, it will help you overcome challenges. But what's even better is when you're thriving in life, it actually makes that it gets that better, too. Yeah. Um, because you understand that the, the moment that you're thriving is not going to last, just like the moments that you're depressed are not going to last. Yeah. So it, it levels life out. And when you're feeling good, you're like, yeah, I'm sucking the marrow out of this. Because <laughs> I'm not sure when it will end. And I'm just going to love every second of it. And then yeah. when I go down, I know what I, I know what I'm supposed to do. Because yep. especially in young people and in athletes today, I, I talk to a lot of uh, Division One athletes because they're people that have been, the thing that makes them great on the field is to suppress this is how I'm feeling. This is where I am. And they're not acting like they're actually performing at peak performance. And then suddenly they're gone. Yep. Well, what happened? And then they didn't share it. So I'm getting to those people and say, when you start getting there, you got to ask for help. And you got to tell people that your coaches, your your players, your family, your friends, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. And that's yep. okay. It is okay. You know? and, and, they, and they look at, they look at um, suicide as an option. They just right. And then there's no emotional component to people that are young because they don't have a lot of experience to understand the depth of that decision. Yep. Um, and it, and I, I had a high school student come up to me before I had formulated this full concept. I was speaking to high school students at the um, Freedoms Foundation up in Valley Forge. Uh -huh. And they're from all over the country, high school students who win an essay contest and they get to come to Philadelphia. And I was part of their core uh, speaker group. And I, you know, did the presentation and always afterwards, 50 kids, they'd come up and chat with me. Beautiful young lady from uh, somewhere in Florida came up to me and she was all bubbling. She goes, hi, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I thought, she, I don't know what, but I, you know, she had this big smile on her face. And she said, you know, um, I've been thinking a lot about suicide, but after your talk, I, I don't think I'm going to think about it anymore. Whoa. And I'm like, and I, you know, and I, I didn't want to go, oh, my God. Yeah, right. I was like. You know, I, I took a deep breath and I said, oh, um, well, first of all, I really appreciate you sharing that with me. I'm sure it was it was hard for you to do. Will you do me a big favor? Yeah, sure. I said, um, when you go home, uh, try to find a family member or friend and tell them the same thing. Yeah. OK, thank you. And walked away. And I'm like, see, they just don't. It's an option. I was thinking about it. Sure. <laughs> and but all it takes is one bad moment. And they go, can cross over to that line. Right. And, and, and then. You know, the, the, you talk to psychologists and they say, if we could talk to everybody who was successful yeah. in that decision, all of them would say mistake. Right. 
mistake. Yeah, absolutely. Because, because we know the psychology of the people who were there yep. that were just one moment away and then they get rescued and they go, oh my gosh, thank goodness. Yeah. I, I didn't go through with that. So, yep. you know, I, and I don't mean to be dramatic, but that, but that's, I mean, I was there and I, no one would think that got to know me or knows me in my life would ever think that I got there. That's why I relate to it. I go, I would have never have thought in my entire life, look at my life, yep. why I would ever consider that as an option. Sure. But it was real. I'm like, okay, because <laughs> yep. I because I can't imagine it getting any better now. Yeah, this is the worst it's ever going to be, and I'm I'm like I got no ideas. And that really is powerful stuff that you're teaching. Yeah, that's when the fanatic went. Hey. Yeah, wake up. Yeah, <laughs> and and thank goodness because um, I wasn't talking to anybody. I didn't have at that point. I had nobody to talk to. Yeah, uh, you because know, my my family were were all shocked. Yep. My mom was gone. My dad was lost. My brother and sister were in, in their own silos going. Yeah. And, um, you know, so we eventually obviously have come together and gone through those things together, but not during that time. And, yeah. you know, nobody knew my marriage was falling apart. Right. That is a, uh, that I is a chance to even point. share that, you know, right. and that's amazing. And, so this, th- that was, that's awesome because to be able to be, to use your, what I would assume is the lowest point of your life to catapult to, to, and have the awakening to realize that you had something in front of you that was easy to help. Not easy, but could, could pull you out of the yeah. depths is, is huge. Well, let, let, let me tell you the best, the best thing about my job. Yeah. And I've given my title as emperor of fun. So <laughs> just, just like social media, you think, well, God, that guy's the emperor of fun. He's going to be happy all the time. Uh, I need to hear this message more than anybody. And, the, at the end of all my keynotes, that's what I say. I go, listen, I got to thank you for allowing me to remember again what it was like to be the fanatic and why fun's so important. Because, yeah. you know, even though I'm emperor fun, my wife is always saying, okay, emperor. Right. Get Ta- it together. Take out the trash. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's, you know, bring it up a little bit. Stop yeah. bitching and complaining, you know, that, and, and, I, that's, and awesome. that's true. I, I well, constantly need that boost like everybody does. That's great. Well, Dave, this was fantastic. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I really appreciate you coming on. So it, it was a uh, definitely a thrill for me to be able to talk to the uh, the original fanatic. You know, you've had a huge impact on my life as a baseball person, and you know, seeing my dad react to the fanatic, my kids react. So it is a uh, it is the fanatic is evergreen. So you did succeed in that. So I appreciate it. Thanks. To learn more about Dave's business or to buy his book, The Power of Fun. Or to book him for a speaking gig, visit his website at DaveRavenSpeaks.com. So uh, I just want to give my review on this beer. Per yeah. usual, Trogues crushes it. I loved it. I would uh, rate this probably a four and a half out of five. Well, I, you know, I'm a product of marketing. So, you know, yep. you can't go wrong with the Corona. I, I, I did not slip the lime in it. My but, fault. That's but, okay. Uh, the only thing I don't like about Corona is they got Tony Romo pitching for him. But yeah. that's okay. I'll that's forgive awesome. him because the beer is so good. This this is the perfect Friday afternoon yeah. beer on the deck. Um, and I'm and since we've got all the snow, I'm just pretending you and I are on my deck. You're mentally warm. I love it. Uh, and if you want to connect with me on the Untapped app to to see how I'm rating beers, my username is brcarney7. And to learn more about um, how my firm helps business owners with their financial planning, visit riversedgeadvisors.com. And finally, to hear past episodes of the podcast, go to happy-half-hour.com. Dave, thanks so much. Cheers to you. Thanks for the happy half hour. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. Loved it.
Thank you for listening to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur, sponsored by Rivers Edge Advisors. For more information on how Rivers Edge Advisors can help you, visit their website at riversedgeadvisors.com. If you'd like to connect with Brian Carney for business advice or just to share a beer, follow him on Instagram at riversedgeadvisors underscore LLC.